This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 30 of the World Beyond War podcast. We're all about direct action here at World Beyond War, and this episode will take us to Glasgow, Scotland, the site of the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26 where representatives of many governments around the world try to come up with a global strategy to avoid climate disaster. We only wish the governments that dominate our planet were capable of responding appropriately to this urgent crisis. World Beyond War was not inside COP26, but outside, agitating and protesting, along with many other activist groups who were not represented within. I'm really happy to be speaking today with Tim Pluta, a dedicated anti-war activist and organizer of World Beyond War's chapter in Spain, who was there in Glasgow to support the protest movement outside the summit. We're going to be talking to Tim about COP26, about the deep connections between militarism and climate abuse, and also about his life experiences as a peace activist in Spain. Before we jump in, I want to highlight another direct action World Beyond War is involved in. Our Canada organizer, Rachel Small, just spent two weeks in a tough resistance environment on Wet'suwet'en indigenous territory near Toronto, Canada, to stop a gas pipeline from being built. Canada's Royal Mounted Police have attacked and escalated this protest, as police all over the world will do, introducing violence where there was only a peaceful attempt to protect the human rights of people to live on their own land. We could have easily devoted this month's episode to this direct action, but instead, please visit World Beyond War's website or visit us on YouTube where you can find reports and videos about the ongoing Wet'suwet'en protest. This is what we're all about here at World Beyond War, and this is what anti-war activists do all over the world, not just for specifically anti-war causes, but everywhere where violent state power is used against vulnerable human beings. So... Let's jump in right now with our amigo from España, Tim Pluta. Hello, Tim. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I was listening to your introduction, and the one thing that caught my ear and kind of made the hairs on the back of my neck stick up a little bit were that world leaders were trying to come to an agreement in COP26. And while there were many world leaders trying to come to an agreement, the United States, I don't believe, of course, I wasn't in the blue area to hear them, but words seep out and news seeps out. And word was that the United States really wasn't trying very hard to do anything different than they have in the past, which is very disappointing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm interested to hear that that, is, that left such a strong impression on you. I, um, I think many of our listeners know, if you've heard before, I am here in the United States, not, not necessarily by choice, but because this is where I was born and where my family is. Um, and yes, I am also <laughs> constantly disappointed in what the United States is doing. That's certainly an understatement. Let's let's start with the big picture. And what I want to first, you know, make sure everybody understands what's going on here. I actually have had very little time to even understand what COP26 is. So I'm going to ask you, Tim, to explain it to me and to our listeners who may not have any idea what it is. What is COP26 in your words? And why did you go there? Okay. COP26 is an annual gathering of world leaders and many times parallel meetings as well as was the People's Summit 
which World Beyond War participated in, in parallel to COP26. It's a climate discussion group of, of world leaders every year. Next year will be COP27. And supposedly what the world leaders try to do is they bring in their negotiation teams and they bring in uh, many of the world leaders to talk about what can we do to try to rectify the direction in which the climate changes are headed. They're headed in a very dangerous direction right now. And there are things that we can do. And so they try to go there and negotiate, well, if we do this one thing, who can who can jump on board and say, we want to do that too? If it doesn't happen to fit into their economic design or their military plans for world domination, then the leader will say, no, we won't. And when it's the United States, one of the more powerful leadership governments in the world, then it puts the brakes on things if they say, no, we won't go there. So in general, it's a world meeting of high level, top leading negotiating teams and leaders that meet behind relatively closed doors this year, it was in the blue area in Glasgow, and mm-hmm. you have to get permission to go in well beforehand. There were, as I understand, because I wasn't there, so I can't report firsthand, indigenous peoples from around the world. There were youth from around the world. There were leaders from around the world, all trying to put on the table what their understanding of the climate change direction is, and what they may think we ought to do about it. So does that answer the question of what it is? Yes. Okay. And now my next question is, um, as an anti-war activist, which is how I know you, I'm sure you are other things, but as an anti-war activist, why is COP26 something um, you would go to? This is the question. Great question. I know it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's the question. Yeah, this this question, Mark, is uh, was on uh, the tip of so many people's tongues in Glasgow because up until this COP twenty six, all twenty five before this. There was this huge, as World Beyond War has actually printed, the huge elephant in the room was, yes, we're going to talk about what's happening with climate change. Well, the one thing that never gets talked about is what role the military has in climate change. And thanks to some extremely dedicated scientists around the world, they've gathered together what little data we have about military use of fossil fuels and the resultant greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. I'm getting goosebumps now because incredibly (laughs) what we find, and this is with very little data, and these scientists are very strict in saying, look, this is a low ball estimate that we're giving because we just don't have the data. The low ball estimate puts the United States military as the number one industrial polluter on the planet. And they don't have to report their use of fossil fuels. They don't have to report 
their greenhouse gas emissions. And this is purposeful, purposeful, planned by the United States government because in, oh, 1997, there was a, a, a climate treaty agreement. Again, in 2000 something, there was another climate treaty agreement. I'm sorry. I don't handle the numbers and names as well as the scientists. It's all right. We can, we can leave markers yeah. and people can, can look stuff up. Okay. So yeah, cool. don't worry about that. Yeah. So on both of those treaties, the United States waits until right at the very end when things have to be decided and there has to be an mm-hmm. agreement and they go, oh, you know what? We're not going to agree with this agreement <laughs> unless the military is exempt from reporting. And so- Every single year, the military has been exempt from reporting. Last year, the United States wanted to make themselves look good. Maybe it wasn't last year. I think they might have canceled last year's because of COVID. But the last COP, the United States said, oh, well, okay, we'll go along with this military thing, but we won't agree unless it's made voluntary. So our military and our government, our government will report its military use of fossil fuels, but we'll only do so voluntarily. So the other said, right. <laughs> okay, we need the agreement. Let's do it. Well, of course, no one in the United States government or in the United States military has offered any valid insights into that use. And so other militaries around the world say, hey, biggest punk on the block not reporting, we don't have to report either. We'll just right. follow the leadership. Yeah. yeah. So my interest <laughs> as an anti-war activist, and this is our World Beyond War shirt, I'm already against the next war. I'm against right. Which our listeners United can't say, but it's a very nice shirt. But go on. <laughs> so we went, there were a group of at least 17. I made tried to make a list remembering and looking through emails who participated in putting this small piece, this panel discussion together for the People's Summit that ran parallel to COP26. At least 17 organizations participated in this, and there were more, but I just couldn't remember their names. Worked for probably four months before COP26 on Zoom calls, telephone calls, Mm. emails, organizing two events that were well attended and were well carried out. It it was impressive how smoothly things went, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. We had an outdoor presentation on the Buchanan Steps in downtown Glasgow by the Royal Theater. Mm -hmm. And it was a series of people, indigenous people, um, international folks, organizations, individuals talking about what was called the uh, military carbon boot print. And then we had an indoor presentation as well with panel members who went over the same, similar, very similar, and sometimes the same information. Tim, is the term boot print as opposed to footprint to mean military? Is that what boot print means? Yes. Cool. I like that word. Okay. So it was the military carbon boot print. Let me just see if I can. Yeah, it was the, the formal title was challenging the military carbon boot print. Good. You're, you're helping and, me think up the title for this episode right now. 
Okay. I think the word cool. blueprint will make it in. Great. And so we we had uh, facilitators for for both the outdoor and the indoor presentation. We had folks show up outdoors. There were singers. There was a a woman from Mariana Islands who opened the ceremony blowing on a, on a conch shell. It was just Mm -hmm. uh, what impressed me the most was the international cooperation and the inter-organizational organizational cooperation. Nice. What, what organizations are we talking about here? Okay. Fancy you should ask that. Yeah. Let's and by the see. way, I, I, there is there is an article that you wrote on our website that has the answer, but I'd like Sure. To- uh, Scientists for Global Responsibility, World Beyond War, of course, Health, Health of Mother Earth Foundation in Nigeria, Code Pink, Movement for the Abolition of War, Free West Papua Campaign, Transnational Institute, Stop Wappenhandel, Ban the Bomb, Movement for the Abolition of War, European Network Against Arms Trade, Conflict and Environment Observatory, Scottish Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, University of Glasgow, Stop the War Coalition, Veterans for Peace, and Greenham Women Everywhere. And again, as I mentioned, there were others. I just want to say how remarkable it is that all of these groups spent four months planning together. And, you know, to me, that makes me feel encouraged that all of these groups from all of these different areas will work together so intensively. Now, I saw what happened at COP26, but I did not know there was four months of planning that went on. So that, I, you know, I, I hope people who are hearing this will, will take this as a sign of encouragement that while these nations are so-called working together, we, the activist groups, are also working together. And I think this is the real summit that matters, in my opinion. I think the importance of being there is just the importance of, of showing up and saying, we see what you're doing. We see what you have been doing, and we see what you're planning to do, and we're educating the public about it. So while you may have hidden it for a good long time, you're not going to hide it any longer. And the importance of that is that war and the preparations of war are the number one polluter in the entire world, and we're not talking Mm -hmm. about it. Tim, if I may, and I want to touch on many different subjects here, so I'm glad I've got you for a bit here. So I want to say that not only is the U.S. military and the world's military as a whole, you know, the, the worst climate offender, the worst fossil fuel abuser, not only is that an incredibly serious problem, but I want to mention another reason that I think militarism is taking us on a slippery slope to disaster for climate abuse, which is that the perception that we will that the world will be having resource crises and that we will be contending for land and resources and safety and security is actually going to be an enabler of militarism. So it goes both ways. Militarism causes climate abuse. Climate abuse causes human crises, refugee crises, wars, contention for resources, 
which leads to more militarism. So what we've got here is a, is a, a suicidal cycle that is moving fast. Do you agree with that, um, that perception as well? I absolutely agree with it, Mark. Absolutely. And not only does it appear to be that way, but both the United States government and the United States military are acting in that way as well. There yes, has been yes, no, mention, has no mention about decreasing. If we abolished the military, we would take care of a huge portion of the climate change and we would be able to get to the 1.5 degree centigrade increase in temperature that we're trying to to keep the rising temperature at. If we keep it at 1.5 degrees centigrade or below, we have a chance of maintaining the earth. What the military has done is helped get us on a track that's going to take us way past the 1.5 if we keep going in the exact same way we are. Even if the rest of the world did nearly everything they could to decrease global warming. If the military, U.S. military specifically, keeps going at its rate, it's still, we won't reach the goal. And and that's right. pretty critical information. Right. And so getting the people, your, your two observations are great, that the U.S. military is saying not, we're going to decrease our military activity so that we can decrease emissions. What we're going to do instead is make new weapons, new ships, new planes, mm-hmm. and new clothing to protect our soldiers as they go into these areas where the climate is changing. So we're going to make things that withstand yes, yeah. more heat and withstand more cold. And what are they going to use to get there? They're going to use fossil fuels. They're going to it's just a, like you said, it's a suicidal cycle. And the beautiful other comment that you made and is the really the the second time in a conference that I felt it. The first one was several months ago at the International Peace Bureau Congress. The international organizations are are actually coming together and not shouting, we've got the answer, look at us, please put us in the newspaper. They're sitting down with other organizations and saying, look, this is is crisis time. How can we work together? Governments are not doing that. But the people are. Absolutely. Well, let me right. say the U.S. government is not doing that, but yeah. the people are. So, you know, hearing your focus on the U.S. as primary offender, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I have a sense that the real U.S. strategy is Fortress America, to have the United States be an armed fortress and have most of the people of the world be outside. You know, I'm sort of speaking of the word fortress metaphorically, that the fortress is Mm -hmm. our our military power. Um, You know, and that I'm afraid that this is not only the United States of America, but also I think of Fortress Israel, Fortress England with Brexit, you know, Fortress Japan. And I think the idea is to have a so-called first world, horrible term, a first world that is an armed fortress of privilege as the rest of the world, you know, basically is, is left to suffer with a broken planet. And that's, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of describing, you know, my, my personal nightmare scenario. But I, when I hear that the United States military um, 
leadership is fully convinced of the dangers of climate change and is investing in ways to keep the United States military powerful despite the dangers of climate change, I can only think my nightmare scenarios are are reality. These are the nightmare scenarios probably being mapped out in the Pentagon as their action plans for for what they do with the the money I pay as a taxpayer. So I am, at least I can definitely tell you, Tim, I am as horrified as you, and I am very glad that you are bringing us some semblance of a positive message of unity among those who are working to address this. Um, a, A world of Fortress America, Fortress Israel, Fortress England, and Fortress Japan. And this... By the way, I'm not saying that scientifically. I no particular reason I'm singling out four countries, but um, you know, th- this world is is a world that we need to turn away from and get back to a world of human beings. So, yeah, hearing hearing the intensity that you are expressing is definitely resonating with me, and I think it will with many. I want to point out also. Um, a couple of our friends like Jody Evans from Code Pink, who we recently interviewed, she was there as well, right? She was one of the, yep. um, and uh, others from World Beyond War. Can you tell me about the personal interactions you had with others? And also, I'd like to hear about what was the action on the street? What were you actually doing when you were in Glasgow? What were oh, you doing? Yeah. And, okay. and who, were, who were you with? And, you know, get, kind of make, help me feel, I wish I had been there, Tim. Help me feel like <laughs> I was there. All right. All right. Yeah, I have to say that probably the the person that I worked closest with was Nancy Mancius from Code Oh, Pink. I love Nancy. She's great. I've I've done she a lot did. with her here in New York, by the way. Oh, cool. Yeah, All she, right. she did. She and I have been involved with a BlackRock protest for for years. So Nancy's awesome. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. No, she did. She did a great job in the in the planning sessions and actually took some responsibility when. Vindela from Stop Wappenhall, who kind of originated this uh, this coalition and got it moving. And near the end, when it was time to go to, to shortly before Glasgow, she said, "Look, I'm not going to be there. Would someone else kind of take the leadership role here?" And Nancy stepped right up and said, "Yeah, I'll, I can do that." Wow! So her forward thinking and planning for example, had a speaker system already ordered and waiting for us to pick up and take to Buchanan Steps in downtown Glasgow so that we could have several hours worth of presentations that people could actually hear. The day before we had gone there and there were people standing on the steps talking and there were people standing next to the steps talking and more people on the steps. There were six or eight people all giving different presentations and it was a cacophony of presentations and some of them you mm-hmm. couldn't hear because they didn't have, but it we chose a time and we chose a speaker system so that we were the only ones there on the steps and it, it was a beautiful thing to see and nancy facilitated wow. the discussion kept it going being on the ground there with me we we met at the at the audio shop where we picked up the speaker and the stand and the microphone very good quality stuff. We got an Uber to take us to the to the steps because carrying it was pretty. It was really good quality, and it was really loud. I was so happy about it. It wasn't some cheap little karaoke machine. Mm-hmm. This thing was a professional speaker, and we set it up on the steps. 
We, we walked up the steps and talked to the guard at the door, asking permission to do it. We walked over to the police, told them what we were going to do, how long we were going to be there, explained to them that there wasn't going to be any uh, fast movements or anything trying to destroy things. They were just going to be people giving information and opinions. The police were, were quite friendly and said, no problem. Just keep us informed if you need some help. The one thing that to, to kind of be on the ground there to to get to to get to Glasgow and pick up a newspaper and see that already I don't know who decides what's going to be written in the papers, but already they had called police in from London, mm. they had called police in from all over Glasgow. In some cases, there were more police than there were marchers in some of the smaller marches. And it was they said right in print, like day after day after day, oh, we're expecting between 300 and 500 arrests per day. And all of the jails wow. and all of the places that we have empty are going to be filled up and it's going to be overcrowded and we're really going to run into problems. It was this fear stoking the fires of fear even before things got started. The first, the first day of the People's Summit and COP26 marching in the streets, there were five arrests. And I, I mean, that's not even close to 100 or 300. And they still right. published the next day. Yes, we're expecting between 100 and 300, and it's going to overcrowd our jails. Come on. Do you, do you think that they were trying to escalate um, to arrest more? Because that's certainly what they do at Black Lives Matter protests here in, in New York. That is certainly what they do. You know, Mark, I, honestly, I, I can't say that I know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. Is that a strategy that helps create violence in a peaceful demonstration? That I know for a yes, fact it is. It is. So sure is. I can't I can't say that somebody's planning <laughs> it on purpose. Can't prove it. Yeah. Inside of me, it's what I believe. Yes. I mean, even the fact of announcing beforehand that, that there will be exactly, exactly. is a way of escalating violence. And yeah. You know, one, one thing I always want to emphasize to people is that anti-war protesters are nonviolent. It's why we are anti-war is because we don't believe in violence. Our protests yes. are determined, urgent, stubborn, but they are not violent. Um, if there's violence at an anti-war protest, it will be coming from the police or from counter-protesters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just want to say that. Um, and I believe that that would be true of climate protests in general. Mm -hmm. Even though I wasn't there, I believe that to be true. Did you um, witness any police actions? Did you at any point feel threatened? I did not. And my next comment was going to be just that. I've been to a number of peaceful protests in the United States, and the police were not there, in my opinion, to be helpful to me or to protect me. I'd never got that feeling. In Glasgow, the police were unarmed which is not the, not the case in the mm. United States. They were friendly, uh, sometimes like conversationally friendly. Can't help you get to Renfield Street because I'm from Northern Scotland. I'm not really from here. But you see that group of police over there? They're from here. If you go ask them, they'll probably know. I mean, wow. it was like- That is hard. It was, it was very, very um, different. In, in my opinion, part of- some of the people who were there were against the arms trade and a police person 
without a weapon just is visually much less dangerous to me. And now that I had a chance to talk to some of them and tried to talk to some of them in the United States, even when they talk in the United States, it's with this authoritarian, you will do what I tell you to do, or you will pay a price for it. And I never yes. got that feeling in, in wow. Glasgow. That makes me feel a bit better because I was picturing what I always see here. Now, here in the United States, um, police don't just carry guns. They carry military automatic weapons. You know, the, basically a, a group of police in Times Square, New York, looks like they're about to invade Vietnam. They're often wearing um, military gear, helmets, shields. It's so good to hear that that it was not the case there. Um, also, Tim, you and I met in Limerick when we did the World Beyond War um, protest at Shannon Airport in Limerick, Ireland. And I do remember the same, that the police there in Ireland, in, in, um, in Shannon Airport near Limerick, were much more peaceable than police I'm familiar with here in the United States. There were some areas in Glasgow that had police interventions that were viewed as much more intimidating okay. than, than the police officers that I encountered. Gotcha. And so I, I don't want to make it sound like it was completely peaceful. It was a lot less violent than they thought it would be and that they announced that it would be. Uh, but there were some confrontations with who's what's the XR our group name Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. Do you do you feel anything of value went on inside the conference? Hmm. First off, to yes, first off, the honest answer is I don't know because I wasn't okay. there. The second answer is the only thing I can give is my impression. And I, I say that it's my impression, completely subjective and not objective, except for the few people that were in there and I talked to and heard from. Mm -hmm. there, was not, there was not a feeling that there was advancements being made toward walking in the direction of maintaining a 1.5 degree target and attaining it. Right. And I have to say that the same thing at the International Peace Bureau Congress there were there was a presentation that stated we're on even by implementing certain very strict recommendations we still in 20 years are going to be using 120% more fossil fuel than we need to use to mm. maintain the 1.5 goal so i think that in cop 26 there was a, no not, not i think that with the people that I spoke with, there was an overwhelming general feeling that what was going on in the blue zone was not what's necessary to keep us on the path to preventing climate crises from continuing. Yeah, that's that's my general overall feeling and well, impression. I I was following it via social media. Um, you know, by the way, Nancy Mancias was posting from, from Glasgow. So I was able to, to follow Nancy's posts. I also follow Greta Thunberg, who, um, famously used the phrase blah, blah, blah 
to describe it, what it was going on. on fire in the yeah. streets. <laughs> <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So what you're saying kind of clicks with the impression I got from, from following it from far away. Well, Tim, I, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Um, are there things specifically about COP26 that you should think that you could think of that we should talk about? Because I want the two other things I want to talk to you about are um, you, you, Tim, you know, why you are a peace activist and also your World Beyond War chapter in Spain. So first, is there anything more about COP26 that you'd like to share? Yeah, there, there's just one more piece. And again, right. we've we've alluded to it in our, in the previous conversation in that. The hopeful thing is, yes, I was disappointed that not more came out of the blue zone. Yes, I'm disappointed that the overall general opinion is that not very much was done uh, by the leaders of the world, specifically the United States, to prevent us from continuing down uh, a very disastrous road for climate. Now, on the other side of that same coin, that parallel meeting of the People's Summit, which brought so many international organizations together and working, I had one woman come up to me on the street and she was getting names and organizations putting on paper saying, look, this People's Summit is great, but it's not, gonna, it's, it's not going to do anything for climate either. What we're trying to do, she said, is have these types of meetings on a regular basis somehow. Can you be part of that? And then even um, Vendela Vries from Stop Wappenhall has called for a follow-up meeting to say, hey, there's a couple of us who have said this is important. Maybe we can do it again somehow. So in more than one place, these seeds are already growing into some sort of grassroots movement Wonderful. that I think is going to be what changes things. And it'll win out over the government if we can if we can come together and work together as a global community. It, it will happen. That's my belief. Absolutely. I, I mean, you're you're expressing a moment of optimism here, and I I want to say how important that is. I also want to say for anybody who's listening to both of us and and is worried that we're we're speaking from a point of point of view of bleakness, we wouldn't be activists if we weren't optimists. You know, we, we're, we, we are here to fix what's broken. We are here to help. Um, and there are so many like us. So um, no matter how bleak our words are and, you know, terms like suicidal and Fortress America are so disturbing, but we are, we, we do believe I, I, I know that we wouldn't be here if we didn't believe. Um, yeah. And I hope that, the, I hope others do as well. Well, Tim, tell me about the world beyond war chapter in Spain. A few months ago, we talked to a few other chapter leaders from Germany, Cameroon. What is this chapter? What do you do? Yes. Uh, again, it's the way it's an international effort. There was no world beyond war in Spain, and there mm -hmm. were no veterans organizations in Spain. So the world, the world beyond war chapter that we have is kind of a loosely, very loosely knit organization. It's interesting. You know, I've only been here for five years, and I 
don't know enough mm-hmm. of Spanish history, but my impression since I've been here is that there's a strong conservative vein in Spain. Okay. When I first tried to open a World Beyond War chapter here in the small town I live in, we had a couple of meetings and we had people, more and more people showing up. And I had posted announcements for World Beyond War Spain and then the name of the town because I thought it would it would give the town some some noticeability, maybe get them in the news, maybe be a benefit. And after our third meeting, I had two people come up to me who were the they're a group of people that act as the mayor for this small town and came up to me and kind of motioned me over into the corner at kind of a little secretive sort of thing. And they said, uh, look, we'd like you to take our name, the town name off of the title here, because there are some people who might think that we approve of what you're doing. And um, we just don't uh, want that kind of conflict. It was, I, my jaw almost hit the floor. Oh my God. I composed myself and said, oh, okay. Yeah, but I, I can do that. So we changed the name. And then kind of the interest started wearing off. We didn't meet in the same place. And uh, yeah, so the an initial group of maybe four or five of us are who carry out, carry things out here for World Beyond War Spain. I'm confident that as time goes on, little by little, that we'll get more interest in it. And the reason why is because we started a veterans organization here in Spain as well. And now, but because the veterans are spread out so much, or mostly in Madrid, we've got eight or nine Spanish veterans here in Spain in a Veterans for Peace chapter. And I think there's going to be some overlap with activities and uh, alliances and things like that. So for me, it's the, it's kind of like, like you were saying, it's, this is, this is my life now. It's not going to stop. So I don't care if we remain five or if right. we go down to one or if we go up to 20, I'll be doing this until I'm no longer here. And, uh, good. So what we <laughs> yeah. decided to do well, in world beyond war was focus on education and what we're educating about okay. are the two bases. They, they're bases in Spain, but they're really, <laughs> If if I'm if I'm honest and if the United States were honest, they're U.S. bases in Spain, but they're not supposedly really U.S. bases. And kind of the, the funny thing that I like about it is one is named Rota, and the other is named Moron. Rota Air uh, Rota Base and Moron. Rota in Spanish means okay. broken, and if you pronounce uh-huh. Moron in a different way, it's you could say it's moron. So we have a broken U.S. base and a <laughs> yeah. moronic U.S. base here in Spain. The thing that's not broken or moronic about either of the bases is that they're very close to Africa. The United States has already increased troop numbers in Rota and cleaned out some of the older ships and put in newer ships. And this is not a good sign. The, 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 intention, no, the clear intention is to use Spain as a, a hopping base to Africa. So that's what we're trying to, both the veterans group and World Beyond War have a common interest wow. there and are trying to to interest people in taking a closer look at this. You know, when you say that there's a conservative um, 
a conservative feeling in Spain. Can you tell me more about that? And I would say that here in the United States, there's certainly a conservative feeling as well. Um, I sometimes use the word fascism for here in the United States, but that that's not meant to reflect on the country you live in, where I've never been. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about yeah. Spain? What is the mood about in Spain? Yes, I, I will tell you just after making a comment about the bases. I call them U.S. bases in Spain. They're 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 old Spanish bases that the United States uses contractually. So they're not technically U.S. bases, but the U.S. runs them, the U.S. pays for them, the U.S. has troops at them. So in my opinion, they're U.S. bases. Tim, we're we're very familiar with that. I I just want to mention, as you know, you and I met in Shannon, where where (laughs) similarly there's an air base in Ireland, and yet Ireland does not allow U.S. air bases. And yet somehow yeah. there is certainly seems There's to be a lot of U.S. airplanes coming into that air, U.S. Yeah. military aircraft coming into that airport. So it seems very familiar that there are these U.S. bases. Oh, but they're not really U.S. bases, but they are. And the interesting thing is the contract <laughs> with the U.S. and Spain for the base in Rota ended in May last year. But Spain didn't say, oh, They could have said out, but they didn't. And so what this means, there's a clause in the contract that says, okay, if you don't kick us out, then we get one more year free to to be there. So there's some organizations now that are just understanding what this means and trying to focus some attention on the base there to say, hey, let's ask these guys to get out of here. Because not only are the troops increasing and the ships are getting more sophisticated, but we've we've increased our weapons manufacturing in the past five years an incredible amount. And that's using our tax money for things we're not sure we want to use it for. Anyway, I just put those pieces in to fill in some of the gaps that I left out when I when I talked with you. About the conservativeness Thank here, you. there it's a conservativeness, I think, based still from the Franco times. There are, for just last year, there was a a kind of a little wave made. There was a group of military people who basically wrote a document for the king and said, hey, we're 100% behind you. And it'd be a lot easier if you were the ruler of this country. And, uh, you know, we're really behind you. And we're really behind you. Insinuating that they would help if he wanted to take over. Well, he didn't. And that was a good thing. But there still is some of this flavor left of we need and want a strong leader. It's the right far right here as well as in the United States and Italy and Germany is increasing. Not to a point where they're going to take over, but to a point where they have influence. And and that's... That's not such a good feeling here. There are many organizations that are beginning to speak out here in Spain now. And um, lots of young people who are looking for different ways to do things, buying pieces of land, living cooperatively, um, having their efforts being broken up by the government. But it's still it's still rustling. There are things rustling here. What would you say is the... um is the 
understanding of the problem of militarism among just regular people in Spain. In other words, um, if I go to a group of random people here in New York City and I say I'm an anti-war activist, I know the funny looks I will get. What happens if you go to a group of people and say I'm an anti-war activist where you live? Hmm. Well, I did that here trying to open a world beyond war chapter. <laughs> yes, you did. Not only got funny looks, but also got the boot. You know, got the uh, carbon boot print on my butt. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't. I think there there are so many things in so many parts of the world that are so important for the countries in which they're happening that I think this is one of the ways that the U.S. military gets to keep creeping under the covers in in different countries is that the countries are focused. Spain's economy is a little bit better than it was, but after the crash in 2008, it simply has not recovered. And then with COVID here, people are, are, are getting desperate. People are losing jobs, are losing businesses. Um, and there, there doesn't seem, you know, Germany's tired of bailing everybody out. And, and it's uh, mm. that conservativeness still coming from people who are alive today who were under Franco and had to be very careful yeah. what they said, to whom they said it. And so that conservativeness, and they had to plant seeds for for grain alongside the road and, and not call in the town hall to cut it down because it was going to be food for the winter. So their conservativeness is based in a very real life, we needed to be conservative to survive sort of uh, attitude. And that's how the kids were brought up. And um, it's still, you know, the generational energy is passed down. Right. And they don't want to give up their connection with the United States because the United States projects itself as strong and dependable. And right now it's it's not really either. But the the, the people want something to hold on to. And so I think they're they're continuing to to say, why do you not want war? We need war to protect us. We need soldiers to protect us. So, wow. there, and okay. there are I the mean, younger generation are saying, yes, uh, yes, this is cool. How, how can we do it? So you do feel that that there is a rising consciousness? You know, it's funny, I, I, I'm, I'm just wanting to hear something positive from you about the mood in Spain. Is there a rising consciousness, as, as I think there is here in the United States? As yes. things get worse, there is a rising movement. Is there a rising movement in Spain other than you and your four or five, you know? <laughs> no, Quartal. I believe there is, yes. It, again, it just took me, I, I kind of go in waves sometimes um, of both emotional insights and physical activities for, for peace. And the wave right now, I'm coming off of a, oh my God, how much longer can I keep this up and and be, you know, not see anything happen to now, yeah. oh my gosh, two conferences in a row with international people coming together and people not just saying we need to involve more women and we need to involve more young people, but hearing the young people speak, hearing the women speak, hearing the indigenous people speak, there is definitely something going on here and it's happening in Spain as well. 
it I think it's just because Spain is so so heavily crushed economically right now that it's not as audible as you know please gotcha. give us as retirees a raise and the government to be able to say they gave them a raise gave them a one one euro a month raise in a retirement pay so I mean that's that's the kind of thing they have to deal with on a regular basis here. Well, you're you're painting a very clear picture, Tim. Thank you for this. Um, I would like to. We have about. I think we could spend maybe ten minutes more, if that's all right with you. And that's I'd all, like yeah, to know okay about you. Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, okay. What? How did you become an anti-war activist? And and who are you? <laughs> <laughs> There's a a. a short poem that I, I like that answers the who am I. I am not me, but 10,000 me's that have been pieced together. And I don't know why, and I don't know when, and I don't even really know whether I am. So, yeah, if I can get my ego out of the way, I see a lot more wow. things than when it is in the way. Who wrote that poem? I did. But I give credit you to did. my alter ego. <laughs> my alter ego I call Warren Timms. My name's Timothy Warren, Timothy Warren Pluta. But I have this alter ego that's called Warren Timms, and Warren wrote, wrote it. <laughs> I yeah. love that, Tim. By the way, I'm, I'm a poet as well. So, um, oh, and it, it cool. made me think of Emily Dickinson. Yeah, I mean, Emily Dickinson, I am nobody. I just like, I, yeah, I hope you keep writing poetry. But tell me more about, about who you are. Let's exchange some. Send me some of yours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's get. So, anyway, yeah. I'm not sure. I really, when you ask the question, I was thinking, well, when, when did I really, really know when I was a peace activist? I don't, you know, when I was a kid, I stood up for somebody who was being bullied and, and got beat up. And it didn't mm -hmm. really matter to me. It just felt like, oh, wow, I really did the right thing. My, my new pants, we didn't come from a rich family. We were, you know, a new pair of pants for the school year was really important. And so I had a hole in my, my pants and my knee was bleeding, but I just felt so good. And, and I, so there was something there that from a young age that I didn't really understand. And I protested in the Vietnam War. I didn't really consider myself a peace activist. I got out of the military as a conscientious objector after going in. And mm -hmm. um, really, I, I didn't, it wasn't really my defining moment as a peace activist. Although when I look back, I, I see, wow, okay, this was a common thread and a common theme. So um, there were some emotional feelings that came along with that. But I think the consciousness, the real consciousness came in 2003 when U.S. decided okay. to invade Iraq. And there was this frenzied, what I call the push by Bush, a frenzied push by him to drag us into a war with Iraq when the majority of the United States didn't want it. There was yes. no formal proof of anything of weapons of mass destruction. And yet we carried into it. And a very large group of us knocked at the at the White House gate to deliver a petition asking for a clear answer to the reason why we're going to war. And we were all arrested and jailed. And something just seemed out of whack for me. 
And on this, at the, in the same year, I was standing on a corner with a peace sign quietly in a small conservative North Carolina town. Somebody drove by and a person laying down in the back of the truck stood up and threw a glass bottle at me. Um, those things made me think, what's so scary about peace that you have to put me in jail and you have to throw things at me that could hurt me. And so we co-founded a Veterans for Peace, first Veterans for Peace chapter in North Carolina and got some momentum moving. We organized a peace rally in Asheville that went really, really well, coordinating things with the police and with people within the town went very well. And it was, I think at that point where I said, oh, <laughs> I think I might be a peace activist because these are wow. things that people who want peace are doing. And it kind of crystallized for me that year, I think, in 2003. Wow. So I, I kind of was wondering, this corrupt, broken, outdated war machine and economy are trying to rejuvenate itself by by making more war and, and thus more money. And there's something wrong with that. So, and for me, it dawned on me that war is obsolete. And that phrase I, I use, war is obsolete. We may upgrade it. We may make it look real phenomenally impressive, but it's obsolete. We're, we're at a point where we can go so far beyond that, that it's really the wars that are holding us back. And the Hell economy yeah. itself is broken as well. And we're using that same broken economy to maintain a broken, obsolete structure of conflict resolution. And it, it just can't last much longer. You know, I, and, I, I have a, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Oh, and nature is now broken as well. Yes, I mean, yes, the economy yes. Is broken and nature is now breaking because of this. And, yeah. And if we look at the natural process of things, that was just what I was going to say. If we look at that natural process of things, if we look at an animal or a person before he or she dies, not all the time, but many times there's this last rush of adrenaline that's trying to save the bag of chemicals. And it looks like, oh, here comes some strength that's going to go okay. And then, punk, dead. And the same thing is happening with the war machine. It's really beefing itself up. It's given itself more than the $700 billion that it was granted. It gets another $25 billion. And it's going to use it to make more things that use more fossil fuel. This is a death throes that this yeah. machine, this machination is in. And we're witnessing it. And that piece gives me hope because war is obsolete and it's going to die. I, I believe yeah. that. Well, anyway. Um, yeah, no, that that is a great answer. I also, I, I believe that there's a misconception that because the human race had millennia of war, that war is sustainable. War in the 20th and 21st centuries has has been completely different than, you know, when, when Spain and France and England would send ships and, you know, soldiers against each other. It is now a suicidal affair. And I, I am sure you're right. Either war is obsolete and war is trying to make the human race obsolete and, and we want the human race to win. <laughs> um, and science now, Mark, is showing us, science is showing us now, and this is part of the saving grace as well, research studies into peace are now starting and they're giving us data that say peaceful solutions to problems are 
economically more effective than war solutions to problems. And now we're sure seeing are. that peaceful solutions to problems actually last longer than war-related solutions. So this is good stuff for us to be learning. And I, I heard one time why I think education is so important is because there was a question asked, why can we read, but we can't seem to live in peace? Because mm. we're taught to read. We're taught to read. Peace is a learned behavior, just like war was a learned behavior. It's not part of our natural nature. Yeah. We learned how to do it, and we studied how to do it, and we implemented how to do it. We made lots of mistakes, and now we're pretty darn good at it. Except we kill people. And we can learn peace. Lots yes. of good programs out there. And huh. so I'm always for peace education. Yeah. I think... I think we're coming around to some good closing words here. I, I want to mention, I really liked the first line of your poem where you said, I am not me, I am 10,000 people. I mean, to me, that's the essence is for us to, to just regain the fact that we are not each other's enemies, that we're all, we are all, we should all be supporting each other um, around yeah. the world. And, and if we can develop that consciousness, you know, that the consciousness that, that got me excited when you said that first line of that poem. Um, yeah, that is where that is where our hope lies. That's why I wanted to talk to you, who who convened with so many other activists in Glasgow. Um, I wish I could have been there. Well, I think um, I think we're going to wrap up. Um, even though your poem is about how you don't need an ego, I think you have an amazing ego, Tim. And you're. I hope you keep doing what you're doing. Um, you're you're delivering good things for for the movement. Um, so, so thanks, Mark. That. And thank you for the opportunity to be here today. And thank you to everyone from two of the folks here at World Beyond War. It's been great talking to you, Tim. And we'll see you again All soon. Right. Thanks Bye. again, Mark. Take care. Y me deja que lo monte porque lo trato bien Hace rato ya que desaparecieron los modales Los modelos a seguir son cuatro subnormales Y todavía somos hermanos No voy a llorar porque así no se consiguen ahí Yo soy caprichosa Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war. Not the war. Not the war. Not the war.